Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Business actually can be a place of healing for the people who work there. It can reduce their suffering and it can bring more joy. Business can be a source of healing for all those it serves. We have lived in this hyper-masculine, hyper-competitive cultural context for a long time where human beings are basically using each other rather than serving each other. And that's really not what we're meant to do here. At the end of that, we said, yeah, we should, let's try to start a movement. And let's start with an event. So we planned our first event over in October of 2008. That was the most moving three days of my life until that point, you know, in many ways. It was just incredible. And that was the beginning of it. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Raj Sisodia. You can find him at Raj Sisodia. I wanted to have Raj on the show because he is a conscious capitalist. So what's a conscious capitalist, you ask? Well, it's a guy who has made a shit ton of money, But he's done it in a way that positively impacts the world. And if I'm being completely frank with you, I am not strong in this area, and I want to be. So I wanted to learn some more, and I thought you might as well. So who is Raj? Raj is the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Conscious Capitalism. He's a professor of global business at Babson College, and he's the co-writer of a book with none other than Bob Mackey, the owner of Whole Foods. He's a smart dude. You're going to learn a lot about how to be a better capitalist, have some fun, and have a more fulfilling life. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Raj Sisodia. Raj, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Great to be with you. 
You know, I have been looking forward to this for some time now, and I know that you have a crazy busy schedule, but I'm so glad that you took the time uh, to be with us today. Of course, happy to do it and to share, share our experience. We'll basically break the show down into three parts. The first one is we're going to talk about the science of achievements. And then the second part of the show, we're going to move into the art of fulfillment. And we'll talk about how conscious capitalism can actually help somebody in the area of fulfillment in their life. And then we'll wrap with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Sure. All right. What I'd like to do, as they say, is I'd like to begin at the beginning. So let's go all the way back to the 60s in India. Could you paint a picture of what it was like growing up in indoor India and maybe how things have changed for you uh, during those years as you moved to places like Barbados and then ultimately California. Maybe you can kind of give me a little timeline there. Sure. So I have a bit of an unusual uh, background in a way. So I was born in a small town uh, in India, in, in kind of the center of the country, and then lived the first five years of my life in our ancestral village Uh, maybe 5,000 people or something like that, no electricity, no running water. And my grandfather happened to be sort of the the largest landowner there and kind of the head of that village. You know, there's a whole feudal kind of a structure that exists. Ethos is very much, as I said, a feudal, patriarchal, kind of hyper-masculine, and you could even say in some ways misogynistic and so forth, right? So it's not a super healthy environment in that sense. It's not a balanced, integrated thing. So I grew up in that setting, being exposed to what we would call sort of the hyper-masculine energy, right? Manifested in many unhealthy, healthy, but also many unhealthy ways too. And uh, so that 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 kind of got uh, imprinted in me in some ways early on in the sense of having seen things. Now, I didn't actually manifest a lot of those things. You know, my father was actually away for my early childhood. He was in college and then in grad school. And then he went off to Canada to get his PhD. So it was just me and my mom and then everybody else over there in that environment. But I sort of, I probably had greater influence of my mother on on my own upbringing. So she kind of brought the other side of all of that, right? The uh, loving uh, feminine energy was, was also very strong for me. And then when I was seven, my father came back from uh, Canada and he got his PhD and then he got a job in, Ca- in Barbados. And so the whole family moved from uh, India to Barbados. Uh, this would be 1965 and I was seven years old. And we were growing up uh, completely alienated from our culture. I think my parents felt that deeply and they didn't want us to grow up not knowing you know, our own heritage and our own language and everything else. So, so they made the difficult decision to move back my father became a professor there in India. Uh, and so then I grew up in the 70s in India. There is so much in what you said. I, I want to I ask a few more questions about India because I'm fascinated by it. I, uh, I, I don't know what this new obsession I have is. Maybe I need to go to India, but I've been finding myself watching a lot of Netflix documentaries on India. And one of them I recently watched was really out of left field. It was on the, uh, the railroad system in, uh, in India. And it is mind blowing at how that system works and how they move so many people. And I just had a friend who recently went to India and he said, I, I've had two friends. One went and said, when I landed, I said, this is the most magical place I've ever been. 
and came alive. The other one said, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And there's this mix of people. There's no middle of the road with people I know who go to India. It's either one or the other. So from your perspective, you know, having spent obviously a lot of years now in America, what do you think it is from the American perspective when they go there? And and why is it so controversial or different or overwhelming or confusing? You know what I mean? Yes, I mean, India India is overwhelming, you know. It's like a multi-tiered assault on your, all your senses at once. You know, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the colors, the noise, the crowds. I mean, it is, you know, remember, it's four times as many people as the U.S. packed into one-third the landmass. So it's 12 times as dense population-wise. And so it's just, you know, it's teeming and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's overloaded and the infrastructure and everything else. So it can be extremely overwhelming. I remember the feeling when we went back to India when I was almost 12 and, you know, it was just like, oh my God, this is overwhelming, right? You can't even uh, process and handle it. So for somebody going there for the first time, you know, from, from the West, it is, it takes a while. It takes a few days just to adjust to all of that, right? And then you may start to see below the surface and you may actually start to see, you know, some of the beauty and some of the sort of uh, equanimity and uh, some of the other things that people there exhibit. How does it feel for you when you go back? Do you do you like it now or do you feel comfortable there? Does it feel like home for you? Because I know you're going next week. Well, you know, for me, it's interesting having that background India until 7, abroad until 12, then back in India until 23, and then back here and now going back and forth multiple times a year. I have developed the ability, I think, because of that experience to feel simultaneously like an insider and an outsider in most places, especially in the US and India, because I had formative experiences in both countries and then adult experiences in both countries. And so I feel now, of course, going so frequently and India having modernized and evolved so much, it's not that big a shock anymore, not that big a difference, right? I mean, you go to land in Mumbai airport, it's one of the most beautiful airports in the world now. It's spectacular, right? So, I mean, there's, the infrastructure has, has, has improved greatly. You know, there's all the technology and the communication, so you don't feel disconnected anyway, even if you don't go there. So it's very different now. I mean, the world truly is shrinking in that regard. But of course, there are still places you can go in India, which will take you completely out of all of that and back into into time and uh, into a deeper realm of, of, of consciousness, a place like Banaras, right, where people go to die. You know, I mean, it's a fascinating city. So yeah, there, there's all of that. But I think for me now, it's it's just a much easier transition. It feels like, oh, I was just here. India is, or was, back at that time, certainly a, a significant socialist uh, economy. But you decided that you were more of a capitalist. Could you explain why that transition happened to you? You know, growing up in the 70s in India, as I said, a dead economy growing at 1% or 2% a year and the population was growing much faster than that. The primary object, objective in life was to figure out a way to survive and get a job and have a career. Right? There was no luxury of thinking about what's your purpose in life and what's your real passion. It's just like, what's the most practical choice? So I ended up, when I graduated high school, uh, you know, if you were good in math and science, you tried for engineering. And if you were good in biology and science, you tried for medicine. And if you weren't good in either of those, then uh, you get a Bachelor of Arts and God help you. You know, maybe you get a government job somewhere, right? So being good in math and science, I ended up getting into one of the uh, premier engineering uh, institutes there. 
And then I started working as an engineer. But meanwhile, I had learned if you get an MBA, uh, your salary would more than double and you would work in an air-conditioned office. And so I said, okay, that's good enough for me. (laughs) So I I got into one of the business schools in Bombay and uh, said, okay, I'm going to do marketing because I don't like finance. And, you know, during that time, I did kind of develop an appreciation for uh, free enterprise and... uh, freedom generally and capitalism because I saw the impact of uh, government. I remember writing a paper for my economics class about the cement sector, which had been nationalized. You know, India, they tended to nationalize the bank sector. Now suddenly all the banks are owned by the government. Air India was one of the finest airlines in the world, uh, known for its Maharaja class service, right? And it was started by the Tatas, which is like a 140-year-old, highly, highly conscious uh, business, uh, you know, organization, and uh, somewhere in the early seventies, the government nationalized that airline. Right, so it went from being sort of this uh, this, this amazing uh, experience for people to becoming a horrible mess. And uh, and then I somewhat accidentally uh, discovered that you can do a PhD in business. I didn't know that, you know. And a bunch of my friends were going somewhere one day and said, uh, "We're going." get GMAT applications, we're going to apply for a PhD in business. I said, I don't know you could do that. Give me five minutes, I'll come with you. you know? and <laughs> so we did, and I'm the only one of that group of seven or eight of us who ended up applying and then getting admission to Michigan and Columbia and a few other places on a 100% scholarship. And I said, okay, I guess I'm going back to the U.S. I, I wanted to come back. I didn't know how. You know, I couldn't afford to pay for a master's somewhere or some other degree. But this was a fully paid... Uh, experience in New York City at uh, a great university. So I, I, I did that to coming to uh, New York in the 80s and there's Crazy Eddie screaming on the TV about, you know, my prices. Are oh my God, I remember Crazy Eddie. I grew up I grew up in Queens. Okay. And then the New York Times, you know, the newspaper is like four inches thick with ads and then there's, you know, everywhere they look there are ads and ads and, and uh, coupons and junk mail and I just, it's a tsunami of marketing that's going on here. It's overwhelming, right? And my focus eventually became, what are we getting for all of this money? And what about the ethical issues? So ethics, efficiency, effectiveness, productivity, all of that kind of became my focus within marketing to say we're spending an enormous amount of money, like a trillion dollars in 2004 was our estimate, which uh, which was the GDP of India that year. <laughs> it was shocking to me that 1.1 billion people were living on what we're spending here on ads, coupons, and junk mail. So all of that led up to eventually me starting a book or putting together a book proposal. I was calling it The Shame of Marketing. And that's kind of, you know, you can see the self-loathing reflected in that. The phrase came from Peter Drucker, who's a management uh, guru. Yeah, referring Referring to the consumer movement in America as the shame of marketing. He said, marketing's job is to look after the well-being of customers. And if they have to organize against companies, that means marketing is not doing its job. So that is the shame of marketing. And I was going to write a whole book about marketing and how it's inefficient, it wastes money, it misleads people, it's, it's, it's causing more diabetes and more obesity, and it's using women's bodies and leading to depression and eating disorder, and all this stuff, right? Unfortunately, I got great advice from my mentor at the time. And he said, Raj, you know, people in America would want to hear about the solution, not the problem. Right. And that that simple insight, which my daughters would say, Dad, Anna, I mean, how come it took you so long to figure that out? 
So that, that, that simple insight just changed my perspective. And I said, oh, you're right. So let's call this in search of marketing excellence. Because I said, most companies spend a ton of money and yet customer loyalty and trust are plummeting. Despite you can't buy those things. So most companies spend a lot and get lousy outcomes. Which are the companies that don't spend a lot and get great outcomes? So what are they doing? Right, let's learn from them. Well, you know, you your mom said something to you when you were younger and she reminded you not to bring pain in somebody else's heart. Could you maybe give us some context on what that meant for you in those formative years? Yeah, that's a, an expression she uses a lot. It's in Hindi, we say, Kisi ka dil nahi Matlab, We shouldn't yeah, bring pain to anybody's heart. Like, she says, I would never want to do anything that's going to bring pain to somebody's heart. You know? so, so that... That idea, uh, you know, is deeply embedded in my psyche to the extent possible. And, you know, it's sort of showing up uh, now in my work and this current book that we're literally just putting the finishing touches on called The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. That business actually can be a place of healing for the people who work there. It can reduce their suffering and it can bring more joy. And bring, a business can be a source of healing for all those it serves, the customers, the communities, you know, environment. And it can be a force for healing in the world, in society, to bridge all the divisions that exist today. So I think that, you know, that mindset, which is, I think is so needed in the world because we have lived in this hyper-masculine, hyper-competitive, almost predatory kind of uh, cultural context for a long time where human beings are basically using each other rather than serving each other. You know, they're taking advantage of each other in order to get ahead. And that's really not what we're meant to do here. You know, I think we're meant to take care of each other, serve each other, meet each other's needs. And that from that we derive our deepest fulfillment and we derive meaning and purpose and, and joy. And, and of course, we also meet our own material and worldly needs as well by doing that extremely well you know so when you run a business on true love and care and a, and a mindset of serving those businesses are very very successful right so it's they don't pursue profit but actually they are more profitable and more you know they generate more value of all kinds by focusing on serving well speaking of you literally wrote the book on being a conscious capitalist. In fact, you co-wrote the book with John Mackey, the, uh, the co-founder of Whole Foods, uh, which was put out by Harvard uh, Books. And it went to number two on the Wall Street Journal. A couple of questions on that. How did you meet John Mackey and why did you decide to write this book together? So I met John Mackey uh, as, at the end of writing the book Firms of Endearment, which I mentioned earlier. As I said, we started out looking for companies that spend less on marketing and yet had outstanding customer loyalty and trust. And Whole Foods was one of the poster child examples of that. Spending 90% below the industry average on marketing, not having a chief marketing officer, not having an ad agency. 90% of what they actually did spend was spent at the store level, not at headquarters. And most of that, 90% of that was community activities, supporting their communities. They thought of that as marketing. Right? So they're very, in one way, they're very unsophisticated about marketing. But they know there's a beauty to that. There's an innocence to that, right? They just said, we're just going to do the right thing for our customers and take care of our communities. So they took care of their customers and they got the benefit of free word of mouth, you know, and, and everybody became sort of an, an advocate on their behalf, employees. So, you know, they, 
what we found was not just the customers love these companies, employees love them too, communities embrace them, suppliers are loyal to them, so they're stakeholder-oriented. Then we found that they have a reason for being, and that's what is the glue that holds everybody together. Everybody wants to be part of this thing that's trying to do something meaningful in the whole foods case to improve people's health, right? By educating them that what you put into your body makes a difference to your health and the health of the food system and the health of the planet. So there was a purity and an innocence to that business. Synchronicity uh, stepped in, I think. So my co-author, David Wolf, was sitting on a flight uh, somewhere and then uh, got speak talking to the person next to him and mentioned the book that we were close to completing. And she said, oh, John Mackey would love that. Can you send it to me? He said, well, it's not done yet. He said, it doesn't matter. She said, just send me the Word document. So he emailed her the Word document, a 300-page document that she emailed to John, and John actually read it. You know, that tells you how unusual he is. How many CEOs are going to read? A CEO of a public company is going to read a 300-page Word document that somebody sends him. But he did, and then he reached out to us and said, I love this book, and this represents everything that I'm passionate about, and I'd love to meet and you know, see, how, see what we can do together and how I can help. And I shared with John a mind map that I had created called the Institute for New Capitalism, or the acronym being INC, I-N-C. Because after I wrote that book and, you know, we discovered this way of being, and I remember the distinct moment, I think it was June 12th of 2005, when I was in the middle of writing that book in Pennsylvania and the Poconos on a writing retreat. And I was writing some of the stories of these companies and what they did for not just customers, for employees, for the families. And they were so deeply emotional. You know, the stories were so moving that I literally had tears in my eyes as I was trying to type. And I said to David, you know, I've never had a positive emotional reaction to my work before. And then when we did the financial analysis at the end of our research, we found that these companies outperformed the market nine to one over a 10-year period. I mean, that was just icing on the cake. At the end of that, we said, yeah, we should, let's try to start a movement. And let's start with an event. So we planned our first event in October of 2008 uh, in Austin. Uh, We had about 125 people there. And that was the most moving three days of my life until that point, you know, in many ways. It was just incredible. And that was the beginning of it. Absolutely amazing. All right, let's move on to the second part of the show, which is about the art of fulfillment. And it's basically to discuss areas of your life that are really sort of outside of business. I know that you love to sing and dance. Which one are you better at? (laughs) Not dance. I don't like to dance. You don't like to dance, huh? Yeah, that's an Indian stereotype, maybe. You see the Indians dancing all over the place. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I read this somewhere. Well, well, did I get one of them right? Do you love to sing? I do love to sing. I do love to sing, and I sing uh, a particular genre of Old Indian music, old Bollywood. It's popular music, but it's actually incredibly poetic and and uh, and and rich and 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 it's like unbearably romantic music almost. Uh, you know the words, and this goes, I would say, from the fifties, sixties, and seventies in India. I love it. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back? it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you have changed substantially where you've shifted your position or you've completely changed your mind? So two things. Yeah, I think a part of uh, writing the book with John uh, was to get a deeper understanding of the power of capitalism and freedom and, and how precious that is and how much we need to 
protect that. Because, you know, I did still have some degree of, not a socialist mindset, but, you know, a kind of perspective on business that did not fully recognize the power of, of freedom. And also I did not understand what capitalism had done for humanity or what that, ins- what that institution had meant. So I think the, uh, you know, John sort of prescribed a set of books for me to read as part of writing that book. One was called The Rational Optimist and one was In Defense of Global Capitalism, which I did read. And, you know, I, I developed a deeper appreciation for the power of capitalism and the impact that it has had. If you were a critic doing a review of your life so far, what would you say? Well, if it's a critic, you mean they have to be critical or they're just being objective? You can, uh, I'm, it's, uh, it's, it's dealer's choice. <laughs> okay. So I would say it's, uh, it's a life that is, seems like a random set of things that happened, right? And completely disjointed, disconnected experiences in very, very different places. And a series of seemingly random decisions about career and uh, professional kinds of choices. But that is all now starting to feel like it's part of a of a pattern, right? It's part of a picture that's getting completed. That everything that happened eventually tied into something else at some point later on, maybe decades later. You know, that I, I had to experience the hypermasculine as a child in order to be able to write a book about the need for the feminine, you know, as a as a fifty year old. If you could spend one month Anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? I don't know. I mean, the last year I spent 10 days in the Amazon rainforest, you know, with shamans and with tribes. And, you know, I mean, that was incredible. I don't know if I need to do that again, though. But, uh, and I was in the Himalayas for a week, you know, the high in the high Tibet. And I was in a silent retreat for four days. Maybe that would be, that was a beautiful experience. I don't know, maybe a place like Bali. You know, and I, which I've been once, but not for a very long time. But I think you know it would be a very peaceful place that is suffused with a with a certain kind of energy uh, that uh, that seems to pervade. And I think just you know, I'm, I'm working on a book. I'm planning to work on a very personal book next. And I think being in a place like that for a month would really serve that work very well. I love it. All right, last rounds, which is a rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Coming up with acronyms. (laughs) That's the first time I've heard that one. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Not being able to do justice to the themes, the very deep themes that I'm, I'm, I'm taking on. You know, being worthy, being worthy of, of addressing, for example, something like healing in the world. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? I want to get better as a writer. I mean, I think I'm reasonably good, but I, I think there's, there's much more growth there. So I'd love to develop my writing. What book have you reread the most? Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It, that is the number one answer to that question. Um, and it's sitting on my desk next to me. Absolutely incredible book. What is your guilty pleasure? Bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> and the last question, what's one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will? 
Maybe there's some uh, some Indian junk food that's sitting in my closet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to throw one more at you. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, it could be on anything that you have a passion for, what would it be? Maybe I would do something on the power of love as manifested in those old songs. The beauty that's that's in them. What we can learn from that. Love that. There's energy in those old songs. Oh, there's incredible yeah, depth and beauty in those. Yeah, I mean, they, they've expressed things that you could not even... Like, how did somebody think of that? I mean, mostly, as I said, they're about love and, and romance. But in a way, it's just like, wow, how did you connect those two thoughts in that context? It's, it's amazing, actually. Absolutely incredible. Well, I am so grateful that you took the chance, that you took the time to do this and you gave this uh, this new podcast here a chance. I want to change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? You know, we're living at an interesting time in the, in the world. Are you optimistic about the future? Are you feel filled with, uh, with some distress or, or despair about it? You know, I am incredibly optimistic about the future, but I have uh, some very specific things that I keep in place to keep me optimistic. Um, I don't dwell on negative thoughts. I'm really, really good at interrupting the pattern. When I have some negativity that comes into my life, I journal it. Uh, I usually do two to three pages. I write for the garbage can just to get it out. I don't watch any, uh, any news, no CNN or anything like that. And I surround myself very uh, strategically with people that lift me up. So I try and have some bumpers um, around my life to keep the energy high. Yeah, that's wonderful. So I was using the quote, the, you know, the, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times from Charles Dickens. And I use that to start some of my talks, you know, because it is true, it's the best of times, but also we're facing a lot of deep challenges, great challenges. You know, and it's up to us which way things go, right? It's later than we realize, but there's still time we can do something about it. So I think this, we have to remain optimistic and, and from there we can act. Well, this was absolutely incredible, Raj. Thank you so much for taking the time. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Well, our book comes out in September, The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. I believe it's the most important and profound work that I've ever been involved with. I believe it has the potential to change hearts and minds and lives. It made us cry just writing this book. And so I encourage people to look it up, pre-order if they are moved to do so. And uh, I think I'm going to dedicate uh, the foreseeable next segment of my life to spreading a movement around healing. We need healing in this world. For sure. For sure. What a beautiful way to end this. Raj, thank you so much for taking the time. You're very, very welcome, Rob. Thank you for having me. All right, thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 